Good evening. Okay, you've made it to week eight. We've made it. This is a big deal. Yes, and some of you I see have already like partaken, partaken? What's up? What's the word? Some of you have already have your reward in your hands. I can see you eating it, okay? Uh, the rest of you, like, I promise we will give you your reward of Jade's cookies um, as we kind of, well, if you don't get one now, you can get one as we move to group discussion. So don't worry. There is reward other than having studied another book of the Bible together, okay? Okay, so you might wonder why we have a wrap-up week. Like, why not just finish with the new content last week? Doesn't week eight just repeat everything we've already learned? I don't know about you, but I think that I've learned a lot over the course of 2 Samuel. But I know myself well enough to know that I won't remember everything. It's easy for me to move on quickly and to forget what I've seen over the last eight weeks. One of my favorite podcast hosts often says, repetition is the mother of learning. We need repetition to really remember, to really process, to really learn. After spending most of our weeks together zooming in on four chapters at once, this last week of homework was intended to help us zoom back out to see the bigger picture again, but hopefully with a greater understanding than we did in week one. So to push the letter metaphor from our reading, the envelope exercise we do to kick off the studies, I was thinking on the way up here, I don't know how many houses of yours like maybe look like this, especially for you younger ones that like won't even know what a landline home telephone is. But we had like this, we had our landline and just like this extra counter space where the junk drawer was. I'm sure all of you hopefully had that. Um, so lots of pens in that drawer, and on top we would put the mail, important school notes. And so over the course of my life, I've seen my mom grab envelopes and make grocery lists, write down phone numbers she needed to remember, or just write down things that she didn't want to forget. And so that's what the wrap-up week is like. It's jotting down the things that we want to recall after we read that letter so intently before we put it away. So tonight won't be completely repetitive as we wrap up this study, or at least not on purpose. David's story began in 1 Samuel, and by the end of 2 Samuel, we've seen most of David's life, but not the final scenes before his death. The book of 2 Samuel recorded David's final words for us, but his life didn't actually end until the book of Kings. During another semester, Lord willing, we hope to study the book of Kings together. So tonight I'm just going to give you a quick summary of the end of David's life, and then we're going to spend some time reflecting on why David's story in 2 Samuel matters to us today. Let's pray before we dive in. Lord, thank you once more to just be able to gather with this group of women on my favorite night of the week, to be able to open your word, to be able to look back over what we've seen over the last eight weeks, and I pray that by your spirit, you would just bring things to mind even tonight as, as we reflect over David's life, as we see how his life ends, and as we go into our discussion groups to just parse out some of the overarching themes. 
I pray that you would just not let us move on unchanged. That by your spirit and by your word, you would just continue to mold us and to shape us to look more like your son. And in his name we pray. Amen. Okay, the final scenes of David's life might feel a bit repetitive. You may feel like you're experiencing a bit of deja vu as we walk through it. The first scene opens with the author telling us that David was old and advanced in years. His servants sought a beautiful young woman to be brought to the king to serve him. Who comes to mind with that piece of information? The surrounding details are different, yes, but Bathsheba may come to mind, right? The servants going and and taking um, a beautiful woman. The author makes clear that David was not intimate with this young woman, but she was brought in to attend to him in his final days. And then we're told that the Adonijah, David's fourth son, was super handsome. And he spent his days busy telling the kingdom that he was going to be the next king with chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run alongside of him. Who does that make you think of? Absalom. No doubt. <laughs> Absalom. Not Saul. Absalom. <laughs> but now, that's a good guess. Okay? Adonijah was right behind Absalom in the birth order and clearly had been taking notes from his older half-brother. And even at this point in his life, it seemed David hadn't completely kicked his passivity towards his son's wrong actions. 1 Kings 1.6 says, Adonijah's father David had never at any time displeased Adonijah by asking, why have you done this? And so, David once again knew what his son was after, knew his actions, knew what he was doing, but he took no action until he had to. Adonijah had good old Joab on his side, along with a somewhat shocking uh, supporter in Abiathar, the priest. And remember, Abiathar was that lone priest back in 1 Samuel that escaped from Saul's massacre that had served David faithfully for years in the wilderness and in Jerusalem. And it seemed that Adonijah tried to get more of David's inner circle on board with him, being David's successor, but Zadok, the other priest, Nathan, the prophet, and Benaiah, David's bodyguard, and all the mighty men would not side with Adonijah. Adonijah went to a place called the Serpent's Stone and made a sacrifice to announce his kingship. So Nathan the prophet approached Bathsheba and told her that Adonijah had announced he was king and David didn't know it. And while we're not told where and when David had officially sworn that Solomon would be his heir to Bathsheba, that's not a surprise to us, as we have already seen in 2 Samuel that Solomon was pointed to as the next heir to David's throne. Bathsheba and Nathan went to speak to David to make him aware of what was going on and to see what they should do. So David called in Zadok, Nathan, and Benaiah to give instructions on passing his throne to the rightful successor. Solomon was to be anointed, to ride on David's own mule, and the trumpet would be blown with loud shouts of, Long live King Solomon from the crowds. The people celebrated in such a joyful way that the text says that the earth was split by their noise. Those with Adonijah at his celebration heard what had happened. Their celebration turned to fear, and they went on their own way. 
Adonijah went into the tabernacle because he feared what Solomon would do to him and wanted to keep his life. So Solomon agreed that if Adonijah would prove to be a worthy man without wickedness in him, that he could keep his life. And then the next scene we're given to the end of David's life was the instructions he gave to Solomon on what to do once he died. It was mostly an exhortation to walk in the ways of the Lord. But he included instructions on how to handle specific people from his time as king. First, David told Solomon to not let Joab die in peace for his cold-blooded murders. Second, David told Solomon to deal loyally with covenant kindness towards Barzillai the Gileadite and his family for the way that he had cared for David while on the run from Absalom. And third, David told Solomon to keep his eye on Shimei, the man who cursed David on his way out of Jerusalem and pleaded for forgiveness on David's way back in. And since most of those people were 2 Samuel characters, here's what all shook out. Adonijah, the new rebel, wasn't done thinking about how he had just missed his father's throne. And he asked for that young and beautiful servant girl, David's last woman. Solomon put him to death because after 2 Samuel, we should be fully aware that when a woman associated with the king, asking for her, taking her, was a power grab. Solomon then dealt with Adonijah's partners in crime. He expelled Abiathar from the priesthood, ultimately fulfilling God's curse on the house of Eli way back in 1 Samuel 2. Solomon then had Joab killed as punishment for his unnecessary murders of Abner and Amasa. Shimei, the rock-throwing cursor, was eventually killed for disregarding boundaries that Solomon had set to preserve his life. Solomon began his kingship by tying up the loose ends of his fathers. We're told in 1 Kings 2, verses 10 and 12, Then David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. And the time that David reigned over Israel was 40 years. He reigned seven years in Hebron and 33 years in Jerusalem. So Solomon sat on the throne of David his father, and his kingdom was firmly established. The last few scenes do somewhat feel like David's entire story in miniature. Beautiful women, sons grasping for power, those close to him betraying him or his wishes. And amidst all that, a king and kingdom being established by God. David's successor, Solomon, was the first partial fulfillment to the covenant God made with David that God would establish David's son's kingdom and that David's throne would be established forever. From the book of Samuel on, King David becomes a pivotal character in the story of Scripture in pointing to the Christ to come. The books of 1 and 2 Samuel are sandwiched between two songs, Hannah's and David's. Hannah's song ends with, The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. And David's song ends with, For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing praises to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king 
and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. These songs were both sung about the anointed David, but also an anointed one, a Messiah to come. After David's life, the prophets began to look forward to a son of David that would arrive. Isaiah prophesied of a shoot that would come from the stump of Jesse, David's father, a branch from his roots that would be marked by the spirit of the Lord, righteousness, and faithfulness. Jeremiah foretold of the days coming that the Lord would raise up a righteous branch for David, a king that would reign, deal wisely, execute justice, be righteous, and save his people. For years, the people of God waited and looked for the promise of the prophets. The gospel authors all attested that Jesus of Nazareth was the answer. Matthew opens with, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. We see the genealogy trace from Abraham down to Jesse, the father of David, the king. And the genealogy includes that David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. The gospel accounts include many callbacks to David within them. Even the everyday people made the connection, whether they realized the extent of it or not. At Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem prior to his crucifixion, one gospel attributes the crowds crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna means save us. They cried out, save us, son of David. Another gospel records the crowds shouting, Hosanna. Blessed he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. In that moment, the crowd could see the man riding on a donkey in David's city of Jerusalem was the one ushering in the promised kingdom. Though they didn't understand how that would play out. Sitting from our vantage point, we are able to recognize the connections more quickly looking back over all of Scripture. Studying the life of David has given us an even, uh, an even more understanding of Christ. David was a shadow of the true, ideal, and perfect king to come. And just like shadows work, sometimes the original image was distorted, while other times the image was more clear. When the sun is low, shadows are long. They're further away from the real thing. In David's lows, in his sins of taking, passivity, and pride, we saw our need for a better and more faithful king. When the sun is high, shadows are shorter. They're closer to the real thing. In David's highs, in his victories over Israel's enemies, his true humility as prince of God's people, and a quickness to repent and get back to following the ways of the Lord, we saw our desire to serve a king worthy of submission. David's story was full of holding the tension in his highs and lows. His life served both as a warning of temptation, sin, and the consequences of our actions. 
but also he was an example of humility, of repentance, and of seeking the true king. On this side of the life of Christ, we don't point to Jesus in the way that David did. David was a type of Christ, a prophetic, foreshadowing character of someone to come in the future. But as followers of the true and better king, we are called to point back to and imitate Christ as his spirit conforms us into his image more and more. And just like in David's life that we've seen in the book of Samuel, there are highs and lows in our lives. There are times when the image of Christ is more distorted or more clear based on our internal motivations and external actions. We hold a similar tension of knowing what we're called to, desiring to live under Christ's kingship, and also knowing how often we fall short, choosing to live under our own imagined authority instead of his lordship. That tension is not resolved by covering our sins up. That tension is not resolved by claiming loyalty to the king with our lips, but not walking in his ways. That tension is not resolved by forgetting the Lord's provisions in the past and depending on our own might. The tension is held by quickly repenting when we sin. The tension is held by cultivating humility and recognizing that the Lord's ways are always better than ours. The tension is held by remembering the Lord always keeps his promises and depending on his omnipotence and sovereignty in every area of our lives. And holding this tension well doesn't come by mustering up anything in ourselves. Holding the tension well comes by beholding Christ, the King. The book of 2 Samuel was about David. It was also about Joab, Abner, Absalom, Bathsheba, Uriah, Abiathar, Barzillai, Shimei, Mephibosheth, and all the people of Israel and Judah. But ultimately, 2 Samuel was about Christ, the promised Messiah, the anointed one, the one whom all scripture is about. The book of Samuel held songs sung about an anointed one greater than David which led to the prophets promising a branch of David that would arrive. And the gospel authors attested that Christ was a son of David, fulfilling the promise. Jerusalem crowds cried out for Jesus to save them as he ushered in the kingdom of their father, David. Now we look back to David's story, and we see the initial fulfillment of God's covenant with David and Solomon and a further fulfillment of the Davidic covenant in the first advent of Christ, establishing God's kingdom. A final fulfillment to the Davidic covenant is promised with a second advent of this greater king. A vision viewed by the Apostle John in the book of Revelation closes, it, closes with Jesus' last words in the Bible. It says, I... Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root 
and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. We've seen God keep his covenant promises to his king and to his people throughout 2 Samuel. So we can be confident God will remain faithful to the rest of his covenant with the eternal fulfillment to come. So tonight in this room, I pray after our eight weeks together, seeing the better king more clearly within the pages of 2 Samuel and David's story, we jot down a few important notes on the back of the envelope before putting the letter away. I hope that we continue to behold the king throughout all of scripture, to see him in his glory. Pray that we serve this worthy king in the highs and lows of our own lives as his spirit helps us to become more like him. I pray that in our earthly living, that we deeply long and look forward to the future of physically beholding and worshiping this faithful, just, and righteous king on the established throne in his perfect kingdom that has no end. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the book of 2 Samuel. Thank you that you have revealed yourself in such a way that we can read obscure Old Testament historical narratives and we can see your son. Thank you for your king that brings salvation to us. Thank you for your covenant and all of the promises that you have kept and that you will keep. I pray that our hearts would see, would see that David does point to Jesus from, from Samuel on all the way to Revelation. And I pray that our hearts would join with the Apostle John after Jesus' words at the end of the book. And we would say too, Amen. Come, King Jesus. Amen. All right. Well, we like to end every study with doing some Q&A. So we've kind of had you guys be sending us questions um, so that we can kind of wrap everything up and make sure that every of those lingering questions that tend to stay there, um, you know, I'm not typically a type A person. I like to surround myself with type A people because I know I need that. But there, even me, not a type A person, just loves having everything tied up at the end of a study. I like having all of our questions answered. I just love to know that we've left here feeling like we have thoroughly examined the text. And this is our last-ditch effort to do that, is that we have asked you guys, hey, any questions that you still have, we want to answer them because we want you to be able to leave here feeling like you really have as good of a grasp as you can possibly have over this book. So... Um, we have eight questions here that you guys have submitted. So if you're wondering why she answered that, it's because you all asked it. So I hope that you guys, um, hopefully this will help tie up any loose ends. So we each have kind of divided them up. Sorry, I'm used to the head mic. So it's fun. <laughs> Sorry. So I'm going to go first. The first question we're going to answer is, what did conviction look like for God's people if they didn't have the spirit dwelling within them? Were they sometimes unintentionally sinning and then finding out when they would have to pay the consequences? We also see many instances of the Spirit being with God's people, but what did that look like? The Spirit was with David, but did he indwell him the way the Spirit does in believers after Jesus sent him? The way David knew he had done wrong after the taking of the census was different than the other times when God would send a prophet to make him aware of his sin. 
So that's the first question. There's kind of a couple questions within that, so I'll do my best to kind of answer that. So um, how, what did conviction look like, first of all? Because they did not have the Holy Spirit. You're correct. They did not have the Holy Spirit in the same sense that we do. The Holy Spirit was active. The Holy Spirit was moving. But they did not all have the Holy Spirit indwelling with them to kind of convict them of sin. However, they did have the law, okay? They had the law, and they were, it was a big part of their culture to know the law because the law was how they would know if they were sinning, is if they broke the law. So there's a big part of their culture that they were, you know, there was lots of public readings of the law. They had to become very familiar with it so they would know what are the things that I need to make sacrifices for. So they had the law to kind of reveal when they were sinning. And they also had, even though they didn't have the Holy Spirit to convict them, they did still have their conscience. And so um, there is a verse in Romans, and it says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law, meaning the law of Moses. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So... I think a lot of, you know, theologians and everybody would say that every human being in the world has an inborn knowledge of God and his law. Like, it's kind of written on our hearts. I think that most cultures, whether they have an awareness or knowledge of Christ or not, I think most cultures have arrived at the fact that murder is bad. And, you know, like, we have, we have these, like, kind of universal things that almost every culture would agree that that would go against our conscience. And because we are created in the image of God, we kind of have that echo of what is right and wrong on our hearts, even if we don't have the Holy Spirit. So I would say that for the Israelites, the combination of having the written out law, the law that God gave Moses, and combined with kind of their conscience, the law written on their hearts, that's how they would know if they were sinning. That's kind of how conviction would work. As far as what did it look like for the Holy Spirit, like did they actually indwell like people like David? Um, there's actually, can, there's a lot of different thoughts on this. There's not like a one single answer that we know is true. I think we, we, like I would never presume to know how exactly the Holy Spirit works. We don't, there's a lot of it that's a mystery to us, but there is a difference in the way that the Holy Spirit is described in the Old Testament versus now. Like there's things like the Holy Spirit would come upon them, but then it would also depart from people. And that's something that we know we are promised to have the Holy Spirit and for it to not depart, him to not depart from us. So there was no promise in the Old Testament that anybody would ever have the Holy Spirit and that spirit would remain with them forever. The Holy Spirit could come and go as he pleased. And that is different than right now. Um, I think that there, there are some people who would hold to the view that all believers did have the spirit in some sense, but th that's one view. I probably wouldn't agree with that. I would probably say that they did not all have the Holy Spirit. And as far as when we see these instances where the spirit was with David or was with Saul and then left Saul, I don't know if we can say with certainty if the Holy Spirit was actually indwelling him the same way that it indwells us or if it was kind of with David in a different way um, than it is with us. I just don't think that we know that it's kind of part of the mystery. There are a lot of, you know, views and philosophies on that or like different theologians have different um, thoughts, but I haven't like really been able to study that in depth to be able to confidently say if there's one school of thought that's more firm than the others, but I would say that it was definitely different in the Old Testament than it is now, and I don't think everybody had the Holy Spirit the same way we do now, but the Spirit was moving and was at work, just not quite the same way. There was one more verse. Oh, this is another verse that I think is helpful to understand this, and this is in the book of John, um, and it's talking about something that Jesus said. It says, 
On the last and most important day of the festival, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone is thirsty, thirsty, he should come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. He said this about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were going to receive, for the Spirit had not yet been received, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. And so that's kind of one of those verses that kind of indicates that we nobody received the Spirit in the same sense that we receive it after Jesus was glorified. It said that they, even the believers at that time had not yet received the Spirit. So I think that that is one of those verses that helps me to think that it was definitely different in the Old Testament, the way they experienced the Holy Spirit than it is now. So that's how I would answer that question. So Madison's going to do the next one. Here we go. Number two, in chapter 12, David implies he will see his son again. What were the beliefs about heaven in this time period? I think that we've gotten variations of this question uh, in nearly like Old Testament study we've done. And it's a great question without a super clear answer or quick. <laughs> so I did find a great article. Um, one of those that like the more you read, the more your brain's like, ah, I think it's at capacity. Like I'm gonna have to come back to it. One of those that I'll put in the group me later, um, especially for the, for the person who asked this question to, to dive in for further study. The problem is not that they didn't have beliefs, it's that that they're they're not written down for us to see. Okay? There's not an there's not a place in the Bible that we can turn to and find exactly what they thought about the afterlife in the Old Testament. Um, most occurrences, um, so they would refer to shale. Okay, shale um, was how they referred to the afterlife in the Old Testament, a place for the dead. And Sheol is mostly referenced in the wisdom books, in Job and in Psalms, okay? We get, we get a couple in the book of Samuel, but most, the majority, are in wisdom literature embedded in poetry. And so it's really hard to, to derive what their beliefs were about Sheol in that type of genre, okay? But over the course of Israelite history, scholars think that eventually, maybe like post-David, everybody, uh, uh, the few articles that I read said that this probably came up post-exile, so this is after, after David specifically, but that they eventually developed kind of categories for like unrighteous people in Sheol and righteous people in Sheol. So I know that we don't really know what they thought isn't a super fun answer, but I think that we can understand that realizing that most of like what we believe about um, the intermediate state, what we would call heaven, what some of us would call heaven, the intermediate state, that comes in the New Testament. So I think it's, it is easy to understand why, you know, their beliefs aren't, <laughs> aren't um, known, okay, because what we believe comes later. But I will point out that when the psalmists or Hannah and David speak about the Lord killing and bringing to life, um, bringing down to Sheol and raising up, Sheol entangling and the Lord delivering. Those were not just good lines in their songs. It pointed to a, a reality of resurrection hope that they seem to look forward to already, even beyond Sheol, um, and that we have a better understanding of on this side of Christ's resurrection. I also have question three. In the same chapter, in chapter 12, we get lots of names of David's sons throughout the book. Why don't we get a name for the son he loses? This is such a sweet question, I thought. Um, 
And so my answer, my first answer may seem like super callous, but I just want you to know it was a super sweet answer. But one direction to go is that the narrative wasn't concerned with, you know, that detail, okay? It, that, that detail wouldn't have pushed the story along. But I did some digging into um, Israelite traditions during this time, and um, we see it in the New Testament pretty clear, and they think that it would date back to, uh, to David's time. Some, some people that I read uh, thought that it would date back. And the tradition was that the most male children were not named until the eighth day uh, at their circumcision. Okay, And so in chapter 12, verse 18, it says that on the seventh day, the child died. So he may have just not been named because he didn't make it to that ceremony. All right. Question number four is from chapter 23 when we have all of David's mighty men. The question is, on the list of warriors, what do all the titles stand for? Like Hushathite and Arbathite and Shalbonite and Hararite. So that's a great question, um, and this is going to be an easier one to answer than my last one. This is basically just letting us know kind of what region they were from, where they were from. Um, and sometimes it might be in even indicating what family they're from, sort of like a last name. But it, mostly it was usually kind of where they were from. So, like, for example, I'm going to butcher these names because I didn't practice them before. But Eliabah, the Shalbonite, was probably a native of Shalbon. And Abilbon, the Arbathite, was probably either a native of Arba or Beth Araba. And so, like, that would just let everybody know where that person was from. Oh, I have the next one, too. Number five, why was Uriah mentioned last in the list of David's mighty men? This is an easy one. We don't know. <laughs> Nobody knows for sure. When I, I we, we kind of had four different commentaries that we read the whole time, and then we would also, like, look online for things and stuff. But from the four commentaries, they all made note of the fact that he was last. They all mentioned, like, isn't it interesting that he's last? But then nobody ever really said for sure why. Some of them would kind of say an idea of what they thought. I mean, you can kind of ask, like, what – what is that? Like, let's say that he had not been last. If he was just in the mix of names, like, what's different here? And that might give us some clue. And so I would say things like, well, maybe the author just really wanted us to remember remember him. Like, maybe just to honor his memory, to honor, like, because we see, I think that, Gretchen, it might have been you even in our group that pointed out, like, that he really was, like, um, like a godly, honorable man. And so maybe this was the author's way of honoring his memory. Or maybe that this was, another commentator made the point, maybe that this was, um, the author wanting to just still keep reminding us of David's humanity and his imperfection and where he's fallen short. So there's lots of conjecture, but we don't really know for sure. I wish we did, but um, that's kind of why I liked having that question in there is just to have you guys practice. Well, why do I think he would put it in there? And it was so fun hearing everybody's answers in our group, but there was not like a clear answer that all the commentators agreed on. Everybody just kind of noticed that, that it was an important distinction that he was last. Like of everybody who could be last, it was this person that we knew this really great story, like this really horrible story about. Um, but yeah, there's not like a, the answer is, we don't really know for sure, but it's fun to think about. Next one too. Oh, I have three in a row, guys. Okay, number six. <clears throat> 
There is a famine in the land, and God says it is because of the wrongs done to the Gibeonites, a punishment for Saul's broken covenant with the Gibeonites. I know there are other examples of God using natural disasters to bring judgment, like the flood in Genesis, but that feels uncomfortable to me. I feel like our common belief now is that natural disasters are not actively sent by God to bring judgment, but are a result of a broken world. But I'm curious where in scripture we see that shift and how we can understand the effects of a broken world, natural disasters, sickness, accidents, and death in light of the new covenant. Is there ever a place in new covenant theology to view natural disasters or sickness as judgment from God? Or does scripture give us complete closure from that because of Jesus' atonement and reconciliation of creation? Um, I just realized that I forgot to bring my Bible up here. Do you have a Bible? Okay. I'm going to read from Leviticus to help answer this question. Will you, while I start, will you find Leviticus 26 for me? Okay. So other than the flood, I would say that the flood is kind of a different category than a lot of the other things that we see in the Old Testament. Um, because the flood was something that we saw that after God did that, he did make a promise with with his people, with, um, you know, like Noah and, all, and everybody who was alive then, that he would not do that again. He kind of gave the rainbow as a sign of that promise. So I feel like the flood doesn't really fit in the same category as a lot of the plagues and natural disasters and famines that come later on. Um, so we kind of have seen that the flood was kind of standing alone. Now, after that, God made this covenant with Israel, and I think a lot of the natural disasters or the plagues or the famines that we see all throughout the Old Testament, they were actually the terms of that covenant. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read a portion of Leviticus that is basically what God, when he made this covenant with Israel, he kind of says, if you will follow me, if you will like look at me as your God and nobody else, if you will follow my laws, I'm going to do all these wonderful things. I'm going to lead you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you victory from your enemies. Nobody will be able to defeat you. That's the good part of the covenant that we love to think about. Like, wow, God is so good. Look at how he's protecting Israel. I'm going to read what God said he would do to Israel any time that they did not obey his covenant, that they did not worship him and him alone, that they broke the law. So you can follow along if you want. Um, Leviticus 26, starting in verse 14. This is the covenant that God made with Israel. This is part of the covenant if they broke the law. It says, but... If you will not listen to me and will not do all of these commandments, if you spurn my statutes, and if your soul abhors, abhors my rules so that you will not do all of my commandments but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease and fever that consume the eyes and make the heart ache, and you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. I shall set my face against you, and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you, and you shall flee when none pursues you." And if in spite of this you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins, and I will break the pride of your power, and I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze, and your strength shall be spent in vain, for your land shall not yield its increase, famines, and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit, famine once again. Then if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins, and I will let loose the wild beasts against you, which shall bereave you of your children and destroy your livestock and make you few in number, so that your roads shall be deserted. And if by this discipline you are not turned to me, but walk contrary to me, then I also will walk contrary to you, and I myself will strike you sevenfold for your sins. And I will bring a sword upon you that shall execute vengeance for the covenant." And if you gather within your cities, I will send pestilence among you, and you shall be delivered into the hand of the enemy. When I break your supply of bread, ten women shall bake your bread in a single oven and shall dole out your bread again by weight, and you shall eat and not be satisfied. 
But if in spite of this you will not listen to me but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury, and I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. You shall eat the flesh of your sons, and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters, and I will destroy your high places and cut down your incense altars and cast your dead bodies. Guys, it gets worse and worse and worse. And so I'm going to just stop because I think you get the picture. The covenant that God made with Israel, like we have said many times, was a conditional covenant. And the bad part when they were not following that God God gives, I mean, he says it here and in Deuteronomy, but it keeps on going. And it just says more and more and more specific things that they would, he would do if they would not break, like if they would not hold the covenant. So we saw that when famine came back in the book of 2 Samuel for, I think, three years, that was a clue like, oh, this isn't just an ordinary famine. That's what kind of clued their minds to like, maybe this is a covenant violation. So I think they would have understood the way that God would remind them of the covenant, bring them back to the covenant, was to bring horrible things upon them. Because really, isn't that kind of what a lot of times people need? Like, I mean, if he just kind of gives them a gentle tap on the shoulder, they're just going to keep doing it. You can see there's a progression here. And he says, if still you will not do it, then I'll bring this upon you. If still, and it gets worse and worse and worse. So that was really the way that the covenant worked was there were, there were famines, there were plagues that all would have been part of the way that God would get their attention, convict them of their sins, and point them back to the covenant. So I would say that the covenant we are in now is definitely very, very different. Like, thank goodness we are not still under this covenant. This covenant was a very huge burden for Israel to have to bear because they were responsible. They broke the covenant all the time, and that's why they had to sacrifice these animals all the time in order to keep their good on their end of the covenant. And so um, the shift away from God using things like natural disasters or famines or plagues to form, to be a form of judgment was really when this covenant ended. And so I think that there's probably some debate on like, there's kind of that period of like, I don't know if it's 400 or however many hundred of years, like when like what we learned in Hosea, there was like a definite shift in like what I would call the end of that covenant. But I think that there's debate on if that covenant actually ended then or ended like really when Christ, you know, was on the Christ cross somewhere in there, either, either when it ended earlier or when Christ dies and the new covenant forms, this is no longer the way that we relate to God. And so first of all, he doesn't need to um, convict us like through reminding us with plagues because now we have the Holy Spirit to bring that conviction upon our hearts. And also he doesn't need to reap judge, like bring judgment down upon us because Jesus has already borne that judgment for us. So there's not a need for these type of plagues or famines because um, now God produces those in a different way. So I hope that that answers that question, that no, I think that we can definitely see a clear shift in scripture that if we see a, if there's a famine or a plague now, I don't think it's biblical to say that's God's judgment upon us because I think that was specific to the covenant with Israel in the Old Testament. And I don't think that we have any evidence of God doing that in the New Testament under the new covenant. All right. Number seven, how does the book of Ruth relate to the book of Samuel? So I loved getting to think about this question. I know this answer won't be exhaustive. The book of Ruth occurred during the time of the judges. And so if you are unfamiliar with it, um, that was a dark time in Israel's history. And Ruth was a foreign uh, Moabite woman. The Moabites were one of Israel's uh, main enemies at the time. And so Ruth left her home to follow her Israelite mother-in-law after their husbands had died in Moab. 
They returned to Bethlehem and eventually were redeemed by a family member named Boaz who married Ruth. And the book closes with a genealogy showing uh, the family's ties to David, which was a positive look forward to a king that would serve as a better deliverer than the judges had been. So quick connections. Uh, Bethlehem would be David's hometown, also where Christ was born. In 1 Samuel, David sought uh, the Moabite king out to have his mom and dad seek refuge in Moab while Saul was chasing him. (laughs) And so, um, like I said, the Moabites and the Israelites were like major enemies. So uh, David's family connection to Ruth really helped him there, no doubt. And as an extra connection, just for fun, the genealogy in Matthew's gospel reminds us that Rahab, another foreign woman, was Boaz's mother, who then married the foreign woman of Ruth, who is the great-grandmother to David. So I kind of, Ruth and Samuel have a lot more overlap than you would think. Number eight, what are some corresponding psalms to the book of 2 Samuel? So, I wish that this could be an easy answer, and you want you will want to get out your pen and paper, okay? But I just I have to give a lot of caveats to 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 my answers. There are only a handful of psalms, less than a handful. There's only four that scholars like absolutely agreed did happen or were written during Second Samuel. I found that really interesting. Most others are like really good educated guesses. The majority of this list came from uh, a resource on Blue Letter Bible though it's definitely pieced together from some other things that I see, like read because I would go and read it and I'd go, oh no, I see that. <laughs> and I'm sure that's how a lot of people uh, feel. Um, but I do want to say uh, you'll find discrepancies on this list, even like in your headings underneath the Psalms. Um, and you'll find discrepancies in study Bible notes and among commentators and, and commentaries. So just know that. But here are a few psalms to read and to ponder through their possible correlation to 2 Samuel. Psalms 2 and 89 might reflect on God's covenant with David. There's a lot for David and Absalom, so here we go. Psalm 3, 4, 5, 42 and 43, 55, 62, 70 and 71, 143 and 144. Psalm 7 is possibly written about the rock-throwing cursor Shimei. Okay, your heading will say something about Cush, a Benjamite, but I read a lot, could be Shimei. It seems like Shimei. (laughs) Psalm 18 is David's song in 2 Samuel 22 that we saw last week. Psalms 20 and 21 could have been during the war with the Ammonites and Assyrians um, in 2 Samuel 10. Psalms 30 and 68 could have been when David was moving the Ark of the Covenant. Psalms 32, 33, 51, and 103 could have been after Nathan confronted David over Bathsheba and Uriah. And then Psalm 60, David's victories in 2 Samuel 8. Happy reading. I have a couple of questions. First, what do we need them to do? Good question. So every time we do a study, we like to finish it up by having you guys fill out a survey. 
Now, I really cannot stress enough how much these surveys help our studies improve. Like we've made a lot of changes every single time and it's always been based on the survey responses. Like even this time, we made a lot of changes in the actual workbook and we had lots of people say, wow, like the workbooks, like they've really stepped up a notch. Well, that's because we read what you guys say. So please don't blow this off. Like it helps us so much. We really want to continue to provide really like the best studies that we can for you and so we would love your input so what we're going to do now is we are going if you have not had a cookie yet please be sure to grab a cookie there in the tupperware on that little black table grab a cookie settle in on your group meet click the link to fill out the survey and fill out the survey before you start your group discussions okay and then once everybody's filled it out then we can kind of do our final group discussion time but those surveys they really really help us out so please fill it out um and last question you ready y'all want to hear this right what are we going to study in the spring? Yes, I think we have decided that we're going to do the Gospel of Mark. So that will be the spring study. We like to switch back and forth from Old Testament every fall to New Testament every spring. So we're going to be in the Gospel of Mark this spring. Um, so you can be praying for us as we write it and prepare it. And then tell your friends, like, even if they're people who don't go to this church, like, we want this to be, um, like, something that you guys can invite people to. And we know lots of people, like, more and more are, inviting people from outside the church, and we love that. So please invite a friend, and we hope to see you all back next spring.